Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, I'm recording this week's episode just after lunch and I'm, I'm actually having my coffee and with it I'm having a biscuit. You know, it's a normal ritual for me and for millions and millions of other people in this country, in the UK and of course around the world. And I have my one biscuit a day because I'm very sensible. And I think that eating them is a kind of not only a tradition for me, but it's a tradition that's as old as the hills. I mean, you know, after all, what could be more kind of British and, you know, settling down with a coffee and a biscuit or a tea you know, in the afternoon and a little plate of digestives? Now, I'm not going to get into my favourites because it doesn't really matter. But obviously, if I were, I would be saying that dark chocolate digestives are the best biscuits, closely followed by Club Orange. And I don't care what you say, I'm right about this. But the point about it is, is that the biscuits feel like part of the historical tapestry. They're as old as the hills and they've been around for ages. Unfortunately, my next guest has got something to say about that. She's the excellent Lizzie Collingham and she's written this fantastic history about biscuits. And as she sort of reveals, that biscuits aren't really as old as I think they are. And we certainly haven't been sort of munching away on them for as long as I think we have. Now, Lizzie is absolutely expertly qualified to put me and everybody else in their places because she knows her grub incredibly well. She's written books about curry. She's written books about World War II and the battle for food. She's taught history at Warwick University, research fellow at Jesus College, Cambridge, and she's now an independent historian. So I cannot be talking to a better person. And I'm absolutely delighted she's come onto the podcast. Lizzie, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, you're right and you're wrong. So biscuits are as old as the hills, but we haven't been eating them with tea for very long. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, when you say as old as the hills, how old are those hills? And are indeed those hills to be found in Britain or somewhere else? No, no, no. So biscuits are basically as old as the domestication of grain, which is like happened in the possibly, I don't know, the third millennium BC in the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia. That's when people settle down and settled agriculture. They start growing grain. They start grinding it, making flour, making bread and making uh, malt barley in order to make beer. And beer is, in effect, liquid bread. And so that's when biscuits come about. Of course, I love this idea that beer is liquid bread. I, I must, yeah, haven't you heard I must that remember before? that. Well, yeah, I, I, sort of, I sort of know it, but I don't know it, if you know what I mean. I've, it's never, it's, yeah. I've never quite joined those two points together because it's, it's the same stuff. It's like di- diamond and carbon, isn't it? It's just the same yeah, thing no, in a exactly. different form. I remember that time I said to my wife, I'm just popping out to get some bread. Uh, and of exactly. course, well, I'll, be, I'll be sneaking off to the pub. That's a good excuse. No, but really, I mean, it really is quite literally. So the very first biscuits were made by Mesopotamians, not in order to store the bread to keep it, so, but in order to make beer. So what you did is they, they, they made malt barley. So they started the fermentation or the germination of the barley, then stopped it by heating it. And then what happens is the barley gets sweeter. But then it's difficult to store that for very long without it going mouldy. So what they did is baked it into barley loaves, sliced the loaves, dried those slices in the oven until they were about 10% water was left. So 90% of the water had gone, more or less. So they're really hard, dry rusks. And those would keep for a very long time, years even. And then when you wanted to make your beer, what you did is crush the biscuits up, add them to water, warm them up. You make a wart, which is how, how do you, you spell beer. wart? How, what's a wart? How do you spell wart? That's the basis for making beer, W-O-R-T, a wart. Yeah. And uh, then you added date juice or honey 
and left it to ferment and then you've got beer. Okay, so I love the idea that mankind was making beer before biscuits, which strikes me as being entirely the right way around. Absolutely. Um, So so then you've got essentially the kind of pot noodle of beers, haven't you? It's kind of like a sort of instant beer. I know I'm being a bit glib, but it's... uh, So obviously my guess is what's going to happen next is that instead of actually then you know, liquidising and adding liquid to this stuff, people might then start eating this dried out rusk. Is, is Am I right guessing that? Well, they become a really good way to store bread and carry it with you. So you yeah. make your bread, slice it up, dry it out, and then you've got nice hard rusks, which you can take with you on a journey, which you can take you with you. If you're a soldier, they're lighter than carrying grain. So Roman soldiers would have taken rusks with them. Sailors, obviously, on ships, they're not going to go mouldy as quickly as if you had grain or bread. Yeah. And so they become a traveller's food and they also become the food of monks or poorer people who live in villages who don't actually have much firewood so on greek islands for example where you can only really afford to bake bread twice a year and then you would dry it out and you've got your rusks there but you don't just gnaw on your rusks okay because that would be horrid what you do is you crumble them into crumbs and put them in hot water and make a soup Right, or, okay. Or yeah. you can reconstitute them in water and then you've got a kind of squidgy bread which you can pour your stew on. Or, you know, there are quite a lot of nice recipes in monasteries books because that's where we get uh, records from. And so yeah. you might uh, crunch up your biscuits and then stew your onions in olive oil and herbs and then pour that on the biscuits and actually I've tried it because you can buy Paximadia that's what they call these rusks in Greece there are hundreds of them they had a revival in the 1990s now if you go in a supermarket there's all kinds of versions of Paximadia so I've tried that and then tried them with olive oil fried onions and herbs and it tastes quite yummy and they make a salad okay. with it in Greece and be, you know you can a dacos salad on Crete and where, when, you pour when on. is Paximadia when are these when, when when's that emerging are we still thinking before Christ here or are we no are we we're thinking bit? Paximadia we think is the name named after somebody called Paximus who we only know about because other Roman sort of writers mention his books and he, he wrote weird things. He wrote, he wrote sex manuals and farming manuals. So a weird combination. <laughs> and he must have given a good recipe for barley twice-baked rusks because in Greece it was named after him, we think. So it's Paximadia. I, I really want to get you back on to talk about his sex manuals as well. but we'll I don't know anything that. more than that he wrote sex <laughs> oh, manuals. Oh, shame. Well, I, I'm really impressed that so far, you know, you go from biscuits to beer and sex quite quickly, Lizzie. I, I have mm. to say, I, this wasn't the direction I was thinking today's episode was going to go in, but that's absolutely fine by me. Now, also, <laughs> Pompeii. Biscuits in Pompeii? Do we have any records of of biscuity type things? We don't have records of biscuits in Pompeii, but in Pompeii, when they were excavating in the 19th century, they actually found an oven that still had loaves of bread in. I think it's something like 80 loaves of bread were still in there, very charred, not looking quite so appetising as they must have been. But you could imagine how lovely they were. And they divided them into eighths, so you could tear off a chunk and and so on. And I, I talked about that because... Bread in that period was absolutely the fundamental stuff of life. Bread and beer, right, I guess. Right, and, sure. Uh, I mean, who, could, who could argue with that? Exactly. So three quarters of everybody's calories, more or less, were coming from bread. So the idea that you would want to store this uh, substance and, and carry it with you if you were travelling and so on was so obvious. And so the Romans called it panis by coctus. So bread twice by coctus baked. And okay. so that's sort of why I talked about it in Pompeii. 
Oh, okay. So at the moment, I'm getting the feeling that there's these sort of, if I can call them early biscuits, I know I know they're technically not sort of biscuity, not what we think of today, but the, they're masks, sort of precursors. Yeah, exactly. They don't sound that nice. I I they would are, like actually. to have a. Are they okay? Okay. Well, I'll have to come around to yours, and you can cook me the one with the onions and the and the herbs, and that sounds, that sounds <laughs> all right. Uh, um, but well, I mean, but the, I still think of biscuits, and I'm sure the majority of listeners will think of biscuits of, of having a an element of sugar to them. When when, when do we start getting a sort of something on the palate that's more recognisably a biscuit? Okay, so the problem is the main sweetener is honey, but it's no good sweetening your biscuit bread with honey because honey attracts water and so they go soggy really quickly. So you can't keep them very long. So that's why they don't have honey biscuits. So in Baghdad, in about the 8th century, the Abbasids move in and set up a new capital in, in Baghdad and they bring with them the ability to refine sugar. And around the plains of the Euphrates and the Tigris, they grow a lot of sugar and they really perfect the art of refining sugar. And so they create this beautiful, lovely white crystals, which seem to them like a magical food. And if you ate sugar, it would keep your body in harmony with the cosmos because sugar was believed to have the same properties as blood it was warm and moist you know in humoral thinking and so sugar becomes a kind of magical food and they add sugar to everything and they also add it to bread dough and then dry it into rusks and what you get is a kind of like a hard biscotti and then of course islamic cooks uh, muslim cooks that sort of cuisine is well known for almonds so you add ground almonds and they perfected the art of distilling rose waters and orange blossom flowers into orange waters and things like that so you would add those to your biscotti and you've got lovely sweet aromatic biscuits okay this is more like it this is more like it and mm. I, I love biscotti so actually biscotti are i mean could we say they're the earliest sort of moderny biscuit a biscuit i mean i'm thinking of the nice biscotti with with an almonds or nuts in them and you know they, they have that crunch and they're just you know they're, they're delicious absolutely they're, they're your uh sweet biscuit Excellent, excellent. So it's nice to know that that my taste for biscotti shows that I'm a, I'm a man whose you know, roots, you know, biscuit roots go very deep indeed. Yeah, you're discerning. <laughs> At least I like to think so. I like to think so. But this would be a treat, a serious treat. I mean, sugar actually becomes quite affordable for sort of the middle classes in that period. And in Egypt, you find biscuit bazaars and sugar bazaars where they sell beautiful, lovely models of animals and things shaped out of sugar paste and so on. And they also have biscuit bazaars and so on. And they make kind of like sweet biscuits shaped like bagels in rings and they hang them okay. outside the shops and you can go and... so. Uh, a kind of um, clarky sort of person in Egypt in that period could have gone and afforded a biscuit. But when they come to Europe, they're really an elite food. So basically what happens is the Arabs um, invade uh, Spain and they invade um, various islands in the Mediterranean. They take and Sicily and they take sugar and sugar refining and the art of confectionery with them. And then what happens, of course, is the, the Spanish push the Arabs back down the Iberian Peninsula, but they develop a kind of fusion cuisine which is kind of Spanish European Arab fusion what wonderful food yeah and they right. take that and they develop the art of confectionery further they probably added eggs to the mix so when you get the biscuit bread dough you add beaten eggs and it makes it into a kind of sponge so you get lighter kind of biscotti and they ah, take that okay. with them to Sicily 
And then, lots of people don't know that, but the south of Italy was under the Spanish rule until the mid-16th century. And so they take that to... Italy. And in Italy, in the Renaissance, you know, there's a flowering of food and cuisine. Italy was what we think of as haute cuisine comes from France, but Italy was what we now think of as France in that period. And so what they do is you serve sweet things at the end of a meal and biscuits are a very minor little thing that you might serve along with all your sugary things at the end of a meal. Oh, okay. So this would have taken place in maybe the British court now, are we thinking that sort of... Oh, certainly Henry VIII was copying the Renaissance art of making sugar paste and then creating amazing table decorations with swans or castles and they even made little little cannons that could fire sugar balls and things like that but that was all <laughs> kind of made out of sugar I mean it's incredible the wow. stuff they did with sugar wow. paste and biscuits would be a minor thing during that course they might be something that you'd dip in your wine in that course and that's how they come to Britain some of the first cookery books there's a Catalan one on the art of confiture and there's one a brilliant one called The Secrets of Master Alexis of Pimor, who was actually an alchemist because remember kind of sugar and food was kind of a partly a medicine partly a food it crossed over what you put in your body would also affect how you felt your humors and so on so it sort of makes sense that it comes in a kind of alchemy medical text and this book by Alexis of Pimont is translated first into French and then into English and in that book among recipes for how to cure the stench of toes or how to find (laughs) gold with salamanders is a tiny little recipe for how to make little morsels like they make in Naples and those are biscuits and that's how they come into Britain. Oh my god so what sort of year are we talking about? 1558 when that book is translated so I mean that's the first written evidence that we have of it I'm sure you know orally and so on that that'll be before that. So we could probably say maybe early 16th century the biscuit is as you and I or at least I might recognize it I know you might call the early ones rust or whatever but just we're thinking around that sort of period. Yeah, biscotti and sponge fingers are now served at banquets, which is the little sugary course, like a dessert course, but it was known as a banquet at the end of a big feast or meal. But we've obviously got a hell of a long way to go from that to the man in the street buying a packet of biscuits at a corner shop in 2021. I mean, you know, you really have. Of this of, so, so what's the sort of journey that the biscuit goes on? I mean, what's the sort of the next stage from the royal court? What's the next stage of democratising the biscuit, shall we say? That sounds very pompous, but you know what I mean. No, it really is a process of democratisation, but we'll skip out. You know, biscuits remain a genteel food that you might eat at the end of a meal. So by the 18th century, they're something that you would serve on a plate for dessert and you would dip it in your wine. That's how you ate your sponge fingers. You dip them in your wine, which is why they're called boudoir biscuits. But never mind, I won't go into that. <laughs> go on, you, you dip, go on. Tell me no, why it's well, called boudoir it's, biscuits. It's to, do, well, actually, it's to do the 17th century. So gentlewomen made these biscuits in their still rooms. It was one of the arts that a good gentlewoman perfected was sugar refining and confitures and biscuits and confectionery. And they would keep them in a little sweet meat cupboard in their closet. Now, another, uh. and that's a sort of their private chamber. Another word for that in France was boot your boudoir. And oh. that's why they were boudoir biscuits. You'd nibble on them in your boudoir. Oh, right. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well, that's that. That, that solves that. Great. Okay. So we go from boudoir biscuits, dipping your biscuits into wine and 
whatever. At the end of your but, meal, toasting with biscuits meal. and so on, yeah. blah de blah. But this is for the not. This is for the knobs. This is uh, the, this is how, for how, the how, elite. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. How do we, how do we... Pick, ordinary people in the street might, in a gin shop, you might have dipped a soft shortbread biscuit in your peppermint and gin, or you might have dipped them in your wine if you went to the pleasure gardens. You know, Dickens describes people going and taking their girlfriends to the gardens and so on. You might do that, but for the most part, working class people are only really eating hardtack biscuits that you would take on a ship. And that's the the key, okay? So, obviously, Britain at the end of the 18th century has a world's leading navy so they're churning out biscuits at naval dockyards like bilio and you know they'd even developed in a kind of an assembly line way of doing it so somebody molded somebody mixed the dough somebody rolled it out somebody cut it out and then put it in the oven and so on and so it's an assembly line but during the revolutionary napoleonic wars they had to produce pound and a half of biscuits per day for 400,000 sailors and soldiers. So that's an awful lot of biscuits. Oh, that's a lot of biscuits. That's a lot it of biscuits. It is isn't a lot of biscuits. And they couldn't keep up with the demand. I mean, they kept them going through the night. The biscuits had to be whisked off before they could be dried out above the ovens and put in sacks and taken out to the waiting ships. So that made Thomas Grant, who was the victualler, at Portsmouth Naval Dockyards, he thought about it. And in by the 1830s, he had developed steam-powered machines that would make the biscuits. And that absolutely revolutionised how many biscuits you could make. I think if they'd installed that kind of machinery, they would only have needed 11 ovens to supply their 400,000 men. So that really changes things. I love the idea of a steam-powered biscuit machine. It just sounds so 19th yeah. century, doesn't it? I know. It's so <laughs> nice. And cogs and wheels and cranks and pulleys and... People couldn't get over the fact that you could produce biscuits by virtue of crogs and cranks and wheels. You know, hands didn't really need to touch anything to get a biscuit. That seemed amazing. And what happened is a guy who made bread introduced a ship's biscuits making machine into his factory in Carlisle called J.D. Carr. That's in 1830s. And 1846, Thomas Huntley and Palmer actually open an entire factory in Reading that makes biscuits. Ah, now, so now we're talking about kind of brand recognition here, quite you know, Huntley and Palmer. Those, those yeah. are names that many people will recognise today, right? I mean, so this exactly. is this is really sounding like the dawn of some very familiar products, indeed, somehow. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so the point is, Huntley and Palmer started off as a little bakery, and then they were opposite a coaching inn. So people would stop there at their bakery, or actually they'd send out a boy with a basket with biscuits. And biscuits were, of course, great things to have in a carriage with you on a long journey. So people would buy their biscuits, and they got such a good reputation that people would order them, grocers would order them, and they were on the canal so that they could send them quite a long way. The other son of Thomas Huntley worked in an ironmonger's opposite, and so he started making tins for his dad to pack the biscuits in. And then he goes into partnership with a chap called George Palmer, who is kind of a real moderniser and he invent starts to invent machinery to make not only you know hard ships biscuits but also sweet biscuits which require a kind of lighter touch of the machinery you can't just roll them out using force in quite the same way so he develops all kinds of, and he develops a squirt gun machine for making macaroons and all kinds of things <laughs> he's very inventive and so they set up a factory 
So what sort of biscuit, I mean, are there any of these biscuits that Huntley and Palmer and some of these sort of earlier manufacturers, are they making biscuits that you and I might be eating today? Are there any we'd recognise? Yeah, yeah, they're making biscuits you'd recognise. So they're making things like crackers. Cars still make Captain's Thins, don't they? They make water biscuits and things like that. So they're yes, making yes, things yes, like that. Course. Yes, so they've adapted ship's biscuits and made them thinner and more palatable and, you know, fancier. And, a, you know, a gentleman working in his office might have a ship's biscuits a water biscuit or something like that and some cheese and maybe some sausage for lunch and then they would also make sweet biscuits so they made shortbread type biscuits macaroons their fanciest ones were called rout cakes which are a bit like a shrewsbury biscuit and you'd serve them at fancy parties and so okay. on. they cost two shillings a pound. They're quite expensive. They sound quite shishy. But I, I mean, I'm going back to my uh, chocolate digestive. But I'm imagining a digestive might have been emerging around this sort of time. Would I be wrong? Oh, biscuits have been digestive biscuits since they first arrive in England. So that Alexis okay. of Piedmont, right? Those sponge fingers, they're like the sort of sponge fingery biscotti, you might imagine them as. You might add aniseeds to your biscuit dough because aniseeds would sweeten the breath. So when you're eating them at the end of the meal, you'd sweeten your breath. Or you might add caraway seeds. Now, caraway seeds were absolutely ubiquitous flavouring in English cookery. And they were used because caraway seeds were meant to alleviate windy colic so (laughs) (laughs) good to know i I, i'll remember that now let's spool forward a little bit because i i i have this idea in my head that kind of biscuits become incredibly popular probably after the first world war but i think it's your contention that really it's not until after the second world war maybe you know a little bit later than that that actually biscuits for everybody really comes to play is that right Well, it's sort of gradual. So these biscuits churned out by Huntley and Palmer's, you know, they cost two shillings a pound for route cakes, sixpence a pound for ginger nuts. They're Mm. expensive. And the people who make those biscuits, you know, the working classes, they can't afford those biscuits, right? They're not going and buying biscuits. So they actually have to find other markets and they export them to Europe, France in particular, Belgium, Holland, and they export them to the empire in, you know, all those colonial types in India. They're all getting their Huntley and Palmer biscuits. So they remain a really bourgeois food. It's not until about the 1870s when imports start coming in, cheap imports of flour to make cheap bread and imported meat and so on, that you get a different type of shopkeeper who creates shops for the new kind of respectable working classes, lower middle classes, and like Lipton's and the co-op. And they set up their own biscuit making factories and they make cheaper biscuits now they're not as fancy they definitely don't use butter and such good quality ingredients and they're cheaper biscuits you can taste that but they are cheaper biscuits for people but people also in that period weren't really eating that much sweet stuff you know people didn't eat yeah no, no, confectionery no, no. bars a, and biscuits sugar like addiction we do. wasn't quite there. <laughs> yeah, so they're growing, but you wouldn't eat biscuits really with tea. You'd serve cake or thin slices of bread and butter with tea normally in the afternoon at tea time. But during the First World War, because cake becomes quite a, um, because of sugar being rationed, it becomes quite a scarce item. The biscuit factories are actually allowed a certain ration of sugar, so they're still churning out some biscuits. So biscuits become a replacement 
replacement for cake. And then in the 1920s, 1930s, you might find people serving biscuits at tea time. But still, we're talking about genteel people who have tea okay. time, right? So it's still still a sort of fairly shishy thing, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, lower middle class people might have a biscuit barrel. You might have a biscuit with your cup of tea in the morning in bed, but it's a terribly genteel sort of thing to do. But my granny and granddad definitely adopted that after the war. But the point is... Tea and biscuits aren't really established as a thing that go together. They're just not in people's minds in the way that we would reach for the biscuit tin. That's just not established. So what happens is during the Second World War, everybody relies on sweet tea at this point. The working classes basically all through the 19th century are drinking gallons of very, very sweet tea in order to give them energy. And... In the Second World War, sugar's rationed. You can't put piles of sugar in your tea. But the biscuit factories, again, are allowed a certain allocation of sugar. And they produced sugary biscuits. And so you can eat your sugar with your tea. And that's Got how it. the connection of sugar and tea how it grows. Tea and biscuits. And how it grows. Yeah. So then, then it becomes a reflex to reach for the biscuit tin at the same time as you put the kettle on and so when do we see this sort of explosion of biscuits i mean i think there's so many brands of biscuits now aren't there so when when do we see the sort of kit kats penguins i don't know clubs chocolate digestives nice biscuits i never know how you pronounce nice on these biscuits. you know chocolate bourbons custard creams when, when do these all start is there a sort of golden age of the biscuit when they all start to emerge well, custard creams and bourbons are peak freen. Peak freen join Cars and Hantley and Palmer in the 1860s. Actually, it's, it's a treacherous brother of Cars who goes down to London and helps a biscuit firm and helps them become Ooh. very successful. Right. And then they actually start to challenge Hantley and Palmer's dominance. Cars never does. It's always a sort of smaller niche firm. Anyway, so... They invent custard creams and bourbons with custard powder in which gives them their distinctive flavour, mm. which is a very chic, modern yeah, thing. Right. Eating biscuits and custard made with custard powder, in fact, were a sign that you were a modern cutting-edge person who ate kind of these weird, technical, <laughs> not handmade foods, right? So biscuits are a kind of really a modern food. So all the firms produce the most amazing number of biscuits. So they have something like 300 lines of biscuits. And that's part of that modern advertising. So they'll have excursion biscuits that you should take on an excursion. They'll have yacht biscuits. They'll have tourist biscuits. They'll have, oh, endless. And they that's where the Garibaldi comes from because they named them after celebrities. Garibaldi mania in the ah, 1860s. Okay, yeah. The Garibaldi biscuit already existed to celebrate the unification of Italy a few years before. And then Garibaldi mania must surely be what is establishes the biscuit in the repertoire many of these biscuits have since you know faded away we don't eat mm. albert biscuits anymore <laughs> okay i've never heard of those but the idea is that these some of these brands and types of biscuits are quite old but actually their adoption and widespread consumption isn't is relatively new yes yeah right i could go on for hours and we just don't have hours but i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna finish off by asking you what your favorite biscuit is lizzie go on Oh, it is a Garibaldi, but... Oh, it is a Garibaldi, right. Yeah, it's part... I don't really think it is my favourite. I also absolutely love Linza Torta biscuits, which are kind of a, a very almondy, shortbready biscuit with jam in the middle. Mm, really nice, because okay. they melt in your mouth and so on. And I love gingerbread biscuits which are very uh, old. Okay, yeah. Gingerbread goes right back to fairs. So fairs were held to celebrate a saint and they would make little figures of the saint that you could take home with you. And then they started making them out of gingerbread and that's how gingerbread men come along. Oh, 
I'm just astonished at how much history is wrapped up in just eating these things. It is absolutely astonishing. I'm absolutely fascinated. Now, next time I'm going to, you know, pick up my biscuit, I'm going to have a biscuit at tea time, uh, which is coming up, actually. And I'm going to look at our biscuits and see what we've got. And I, I'm just going to be able to sort of tell my children just a little bit more about what it is that they raid behind my back and the history of it. But... Everyday mundane foods really have a story within them. They're really fascinating. I love unpicking no, I, all the stories. No, it is. And it is the best form of kind of social history and culinary history it, it, it's absolutely fascinating because it tells us so much about our habits and our tastes and who we are so lizzie thank you so much now your book it came out a short while ago but it's called the biscuit the history of a very british indulgence and indeed it is so if you want to know more and i'm sure you do then please do have a look check that out available in all normal places i'm sure and that is it for today if you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe to us and indeed leave us a review glowing preferably on either Apple Podcasts, Google or Spotify and of course you can access this great podcast at the Mail Plus app and you can also connect with Mail Plus on Twitter at Mail Plus and also you can connect with me there as well at Guy Walters. But in the meantime Lizzie, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure.